Hello, welcome to the Quad Hawk Podcast. Simple day to start up a revolution. stars. Oh, how beautiful. Well, I thought we could record a little introduction to your, my starter pack that I made for you. Um, Everybody wants to know, first of all, everybody finds out that you've written really over well over 150 books i think it's about 150 that are in print and another two dozen that await publication so people are first quite shocked by that as they should be and then they ask well what should i read first and it's a very good question and i have learned as we have gotten to know each other, I have learned that this is the type of question which you will never answer the same way twice. What would you answer if someone asked you that right now? Uh, okay, well, what book they should read first? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, the fact that people are shocked that I've written that many books, those are only people that know. Uh, are not among the women that I've neglected in my life and would write this book. <laughs> they wouldn't be shocked <laughs> by that. Uh, what, what book of mine should you read first? I'd, I'd have to find something out about you because I, I think I'm writing in like nine different categories. So that's a, it would depend on what I thought you were interested in. So that's why it's, it's so hard to answer as a generic question. If, so when I get asked out of the blue, I'm going to probably spout off for something that I recently was working on, a category that I was recently writing on. Or, you know, if, if I, if I'm asked this question right after I survive a walk from Baltimore City to Baltimore County, then I'm probably going to recommend the Arm City book. <laughs> so I, you know, I just don't know how, I don't know a good way to answer the question. And in fact, I think your starter list is, not even based on stuff I provided. I think uh, Sean said, yeah, well, I remember him calling me up when I was in Portland and saying, well, if you got to come up with some kind of starter list, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, I'm telling people to read uh, Taboo You and Being a Bad Man in the Worst World. And he said, you need to come up with like a book in each category that, you know, that people should read. <laughs> so so I, I think I tried and failed. But... I had forgotten that that was Sean's idea. I was here. I was giving myself credit for coming up with the the idea well, think, for a starter pack, but thank you, Sean. I think you came. I think you came up with the starter pack, but it was this is the first the first time I heard of the idea was him chewing me out. <laughs> uh, I was walking around southeastern Portland, uh, trying not not to get hit by a stray crow. Yeah, uh, it's been it's a question that has been asked, and it is an absolutely 
legitimate question. So, so we we'll can we can talk about genres. And one thing that you <laughs> actually why don't, we why don't we just talk about the books that are in the starter pack, and then we can do a separate video for each genre. Well, I think we should do that. I agree with that. But the starter pack is organized by genre. It is. Yes. Okay. And the bookstore so, so is or <laughs> organized by genre. Okay. So I thought okay. I would give just a very quick rundown of the genres to explain also to people that you write on uh, a wide variety of topics. So I created this the bookstore, the general bookstore, which is a portal into a bunch more bookstores because... There has to be some organization. I was going to tell about making you a spreadsheet. Yeah, this is really cute. But, uh, I mean, you're, you're trying, since we don't share an office together, you're trying your best to make that happen remotely, and I'm flattered. And I've got to tell you that if we shared an office together, I would like bring army men into the office, and they would take up sniper positions around your organization and everything, and we would infiltrate your desk, <laughs> and I would throw paper planes at you, and probably pull some pranks on you. Well, if I, was, if I were given to telling personal stories in public, which I am not, I would tell you some really shocking stories of the conditions under which I worked when I had a big girl job, but mm. I'm not going to tell them... <laughs> You know, a few army men really cannot. I, I walk like a cat. You know, we have Legos in this house, so I can just step. I can step on Legos without experiencing pain. It's really well. Awful. You know what you use if you're an army man and you're combating giant people. You use jacks. Oh, well, that's a little bit <laughs> for more severe. Cow traps or for uh, tank traps against toy tanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have I have sensitive feet. I'm always barefoot, so I'm good at walking barefoot, like an Indian or something. I made this spreadsheet, and I was just trying to make sense of how many books you've written and what each book is about. And so I figured out that you have the Sunset Saga, so that's fiction, but it's all in its own. It all belongs together, and in its and it's in its own bookstore. And then we have a video, so if people want to know more about that, there's a video for that. And then we have Plantation America, which I have been involved with, with a lot. And we're up to nine books in print there, I think, and more to come. And we also have a video on Plantation America. And I think we're going to eventually get videos for all these. Right, and if I ever end up getting lynched for writing these Plantation America <laughs> Maybe you could put, get the World Star video and like put it at the bottom of the Plantation America. The World Star view getting. That video of me being lynched. Stomped. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> That's not going to happen. That would require people to do reading, to read and understand, and it's not going to happen. So then you have a lot of combat books, but we split them up into two overlapping categories, which is combat and survival. And we don't have videos for those, but those are going to be good videos because this is a, a really a lot of good stuff here, like The Violence Project, The Logic of Steel, those guys. Then we came up with this Poets, Seers, and Heroes, which is a little bit of an obscured name for this category, but this that's the literary category. That's where you'll find your impressions of Robert E. Howard, of Melville, of you're doing now H.P. Lovecraft. and It's my safe space where I'm allowed to nerd out. That's the nerd space. <laughs> then we have the biography category, which I have called Uncommon Men. And that's these are really wonderful stories of real people that James has met and written their stories in their own words for the most part. It's pretty remarkable. Then there's the category of masculinity. Books dedicated to masculinity, although masculinity is obviously a thread throughout. And Harm City, USA. <laughs> That's my original category. <laughs> yeah, there's 
a lot of Harm City books, and they are just full of really unbelievable hair-raising adventures. Uh, here, a, a shout out to Thought Criminalites. Oh, uh, Thought uh, I actually got to stick fight with this uh, with this man, and he told me uh, that when he first heard me on the myth of the 20th century, he thought I was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was really great. And, uh, That's awesome. Like yeah, that so you were we, full of shit about what Baltimore is like or what your life is like as a, as a you know, s- street criminal avoider. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually we met and, uh, and he said, that, you know, he uh, changed his mind. Once you whacked him with a stick a few times? Well, we didn't do that until after, but, you know, we... We just did some late sparring the first time we got together um, and socialized. So it was uh, uh, this last time where we actually whacked each other. I could and see but, that people would be skeptical because, I mean, they have to understand that you're not, like, strolling the business district at lunchtime to buy a sandwich, although that got pretty hairy, too. But you, you were wandering the streets at night, going back and forth from a night job. And riding buses and, you know, not not like the nine to five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I worked night crew in Baltimore for well, the 38 years I was in the grocery business. I was working on night crews for 34 of those years. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm out there in that uh, time slot that's reserved for uh, for horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so, and the other thing is, I'm a pedestrian. I know a couple of guys. You know, the guy I lived with Steve. Steve's never had anybody try to attack him because he really, he just goes to job sites, he goes to his karate school, and he goes to his house. And he's not and he'll go to occasional restaurant. Nocturnal. And he, right, and he's living a normal daytime life. Yeah. And he drives. Yeah. Okay, so, and he's got driveway parking, which makes you less vulnerable to sidewalk crime. And if you have street parking and you don't know, you might end up parking two blocks down. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is uh, the fact that I'm just an unsuccessful human being when it comes to, uh, you know, the economic measure of success that um, our God uses to decide how important we are. And that's why I was in so much danger. Uh, for for the most part, so me getting attacked, you know, once a week, once a month, uh, once every couple months, but that would translate into somebody that drives maybe having a, a run in once a year, maybe, uh, maybe less than that. The last category is fiction, and this is really fiction that excludes uh, the Sunset Saga, and there's a whole bunch of good stuff in there, so. That alone, that rundown alone, and actually I don't have a category here for games because you design role-playing games too. Right, and we have one of them just exists as an electronic game that you can't get right now because uh, it's HTML and the bookstore is not up. And the other one right now just exists as a manuscript, and I have to add another game to it, um, designing a game called Kings that you play with a deck of cards. So that's just so, a massive and wide, massive number and wide range of topics that you cover. So if someone wants to start, they kind of have to pick a topic first. And so that's why we have to do the starter pack. And since I'm the one that does this, I'm the one that chose what's in the starter pack. <laughs> <laughs> so... Okay. Uh, <laughs> so if you don't like that, you're going to have to learn how to code in the blog spot and do something about it. Yeah, I've just been afflicted with vaginal authority once again uh, <laughs> in, a, in a high-tech setting. And, you know, this never ends with you people. It's, uh, I contend that we're not even members of the same species. And no, somehow, like, some, some aliens put us together creatures. on the planet. <laughs> well, it's possible. <laughs> I mean, okay. well, but going uh, back... I really appreciate, uh, you know, taking care of all this one. 
Well, thank you. And, and going back to the, the opening question was that, honestly, this is something that you answer differently every time. Which, and you answer many questions differently every time, and that's perfectly okay. I know some women don't like that, but I understand it. So... You're comfortable with schizophrenia. I'm comfortable with it. <laughs> so what I'm saying... However, this brings me to some other point, which is that it would probably be okay, it would probably be good to rotate what's in the starter pack, but we're just going to talk about what's in the starter pack today. And it is always subject to change, and I actually do um, state that in the opening paragraph there to tell you what the starter pack is. I don't even know. Um, I have like five or six in here right now. Let's see. So I didn't I didn't put one thing from each category, but I put things in. So I have to start with fiction. Okay. And I have to start with Reverend Chandler. And this isn't really the whole concept of doing this isn't really fair because it's picking favorites and you know as a mom you can't pick favorites. You have to treat all children equally. But I chose Reverend Chandler because that was, you were writing it back when I found your website. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to read about Freddie Gray. I'm not going to get sucked into this website and, you know, read every single thing that comes out. I'm just going to read Freddie Gray. But then I did. You were mesmerized by the woke devil tree. That's right. And that was primarily due to Reverend Chandler. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what did you like about Reverend Chandler? Just <sighs> Well, you know, I had never even, re- I had read just very little Howard. And I knew that I wanted to read Howard, but I just hadn't yet. You know, so he was already on my list because of Greg Cochran. But then, you know, I learned more about him from you. But it's, it definitely has, like, a Howardian pace to it, although it's more, you know, it's, like, more intense. It's extremely violent. <laughs> it's short. There's no women in it. Like, the only women are dead <laughs> in the story. So, you know, what more could you ask for? It's <laughs> the ultimate misogynistic right. slug effect. It's, like... Uh, Blood and guts on every page. It's not a book I ever planned to want. It was never in my mind. I have all kinds of books in my mind that I want to write that yeah. I haven't written yet. That book was never in my mind. I, mean, I didn't have an idea for that story. But I had early on, the, the first book I published, actually, Astride the Chariot of the Night. There's two novelettes that are extracted from the Sunset Saga uh, that I wrote in 2012. And those two novelettes are in the book Seven Moons Deep uh, and the Sunset Saga, which I didn't finish writing until just a few months ago. It took me like eight years to write this book. Well, I sold like two copies of A Stride and Cherry tonight. This uh, one guy really liked it. He just, he just thought it was great. And this other fella uh, gave it a four. And these are both guys that I met. And back then, the only people I think that bought my books other than the Paladin books for people I know. And the one fellow that liked it put a caveat on it. He's like, look, you know, it's really cool seeing like this, you know, Caucasian meathead hero slaughtering, uh, slaughtering these guys. But he only killed like five black dudes and he stacked up like 25 bikers. And I don't like that. I want to see something where, you know, it's like, like, a bunch of POCs getting killed by white heroes and stuff. And I'm like, really? Yeah, you want that? You want me to write a book where it's uh, these like just super badass uh, pale faces fighting armies of uh, POCs, right? He's like, yeah, man. I want to. I want to see like Conan holding back the mudslide. <laughs> so, oh, man. so I said, okay, bro, you got it. Okay, so I'm gonna write that story. I said, but you know I'm a prick, so you know that there's going to be a little genie thing in there. Yeah, there's going to be something a that, that, a big that makes catch. this yeah. bad. And the catch is yeah. that these seven super badass white dudes are the last white dudes. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and every one of them dies. <laughs> yeah, it's like, boom. 
<laughs> Every chapter is basically the story of one of these guys slaughtering as many as he can until he gets dragged down and eaten alive. <laughs> yeah, and and it it's um takes place in future North America, which is in the grips of a new ice age, and these guys, these last white guys on Earth, have like a fusion of a Viking and a Native American culture. So they're like, they have axes and, you know, they have like uh, tracking. They, they, they can follow tracks and stuff like that. So, uh, And nobody before, I believe, has written a novella-length book in which 30% of the contact, content takes place in a post-apocalyptic train. Okay. I think yeah, that I've got that. I think I got that locked. I think yeah. you have. To, <laughs> I well, I have to say that I don't think that. Well, I I don't think anyone could survive. Like you'd start getting really bad things happening. But anyway, <laughs> just not that long, you know. However, let's go back. So this book is is short. It's absolutely action packed. Extremely bloody and gory, and. It's just really good. I don't know. People love it, right? It's not just me. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think we sold like twelve copies over the past uh, four years. Uh, that's like <laughs> that's really good for fiction for me. <laughs> wow. And and it, and it's got like five five star reviews. I think. Yeah, it's got. Yeah, so it's, people love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You just you have to read it. So that one's out there. So that's Robert Chandler. That's right up top. Next comes Masculine Access from the Masculinity Store. And this is some good stuff in it. And I have to admit, I picked this one because it was one of the first ones I edited. And I worked really hard on it. And actually, there's a little bit of my writing in there, too. Because we did some, we were doing, like, back and forth email kind of stuff that made it in here. There's, there's some good stuff in there. It was intended to be my last masculine. <laughs> so, but it turns out it's like really ends up halfway through the series now. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it was an attempt to better explain historical, to better use uh, historical references and myths to explain different masculine perspectives than what we have right now. I had previously tried to do that with uh of lions and men which it's got a whole lot of information in it and maybe one of the best chapters i've read is in that you know on the subject but structurally i think it fails it's uh, as a single concept book it's more of a reference book well when i was editing masculine access i thought you know that i could just spend months on one book but if i did that i would it would be like centuries before I finished the books that need to be edited. So anyway, I spent a lot of time on that one. And, um, you know, we actually, I'm remembering now that we actually covered it in a podcast, but, but there's something really special in there, which is Grace Speaker. And that's... Which is a translation of Uthamus. He was the next to the Sander of Maxos. He was... Uh, Tied for second for the most Olympic uh, boxing victories. The guy he's tied with is Telephilia Stevenson, the Cuban, who could never fight as a professional because he fought at a communist Cuba. And uh, Uthamus was the boxing champion who lost to Theogenes of Thessos, who's probably the most dominant prize fighter in history, but Theogenes mostly fought in the Pancratian. Uh, he entered the boxing just to spite Uthamus, just to prove that he was better than Uthamus, even though it wasn't his best event. And he beat Uthamus, but was so battered, he wasn't able to compete in the Pancradian, and he got fined. He had to donate a huge amount of money, which was used to raise a Zane. A Zane is a statue of Zeus, the Oath Keeper. And for that, these are raised for people who break broke the rules of Olympia. He broke these rules, so one, uh, a lot of the information we have on Uthamus uh, is actually 
um, revolves around his relationship with uh, with Theogenes, but he actually he's uh, he actually prefigures uh, the the Hellenic idea of uh, Jesus Christ as much as Socrates does. Uh, a lot of people point out that the Gospels were mostly written in Greek by Greek speakers, Greek thinkers, and that Socrates definitely prefigured uh, the life of Jesus. And um, I'd, I'd have to say, although most people don't know about him because they haven't read athletic history, Euthymus uh, prefigures even more supernatural aspects of uh, the story of Jesus than Socrates does. So it's really fascinating to me. Seemed like the ultimate masculine figure because he uh, he stayed relevant even relative even when he was an old man. He wasn't somebody that was just obsessed with his own stature. He, he would he would take a chance to try to do something that was right for the community. And people should understand that you're actually translating Greek yourself. Yeah, it usually usually sounds horrible, but I did get my uh, my name translations. I did have them checked by. A professor of the classics, yeah. and I, I did some epigrams. My epigrams that they read absolutely horrible. It's, it's like listening to some English soccer hooligan that uh, used to see word over and over again. But but it's I think my epigrams are more accurate. The the, the problem is when you get translations of of Greek epigrams and other things. The uh, English speakers that do the translations, they have these poetic aspirations of their own, and they actually corrupt the information in the epigram in order to make it sound better in English. And I didn't do that. Right. They're poets and nerds, and you are much closer to a Greek warrior than, uh, you know, these guys in Oxford or whatever. I'm about the size of a Greek warrior. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm a small guy. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, I was just, this was all, uh, I got gathered this information when I was looking into what combat sports were in the ancient world, what they were like uh, for the participant, and uh, what they meant from the participant's perspective instead of from some uh, modern academic's perspective. So I came at it with an understanding of them of what these guys were doing and the academics didn't, you know, so it never really made sense of it. All right. I made a selection from Plantation America for the starter pack and that is Cracker Boy. So the, the theme here is that I'm pretty sure these are all books except, except Reverend Chandler. These are books I've worked on for the most part. So Cracker Boy, this is a big book. But it's a very important book. And it's big, it's got a lot of pages, but it's really in bite-sized pieces. Okay. I'd like to think of it as my version of the African-American nationalist We Was Kang's narrative. <laughs> but this is the... Uh, we this Was is Slaves. The, right, this is the white trash uh, <laughs> We Was Slaves narrative. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's something that people do on Twitter. I don't know if they do this much anymore, but whenever some African-American is doing that, like, you know, talking about pyramids and stuff, they actually will respond, like, you'll see dozens of responses in there. We was kings. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah. We were slaves. <laughs> so, they, so the Cracker Boy is a big book. It has original sources. It has analysis of those original sources. It has a lot of runaway slave ads. And this was a topic that really amused me because runaway slave ads are just that. They are newspaper ads that that people would run, like saying, you know, help me find um, my lost slave, men and women, different ages, all sorts of physical conditions these people had you know, uh, smallpox scars or a lame leg or a lump on his head or, you know, all kinds of stuff, descriptions of their clothing. And there's tons of them for white people. And it's... And And there's like five of them for black dudes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's... That was just the Maryland Register. You know, when you look at 
more southern resources, you see a high percentage of, of the ads for the African runaways. Um, but the in Maryland, uh, I remember you ended up working up the stats, but this was, we've used uh, hundreds of runaway slave ads in the other volumes. Some of them show up in each of the other volumes. And I think in uh, So His Master May Have Him Again and So Her Master May Have Her Again, those each have like a hundred listings in them. It's something really big or it's a mess. Uh, I remember one, I specifically put the 38 women uh, in there and one last. But those 38 women are extracted from the uh, the registry in the Maryland Arch- Historical Archives, which has 940-some listings. They arbitrarily stop putting these things in the database out of the the ads of when the Revolutionary War kicks off. Okay, so the modern historians have decided that there were no more runaway slave ads uh, worth studying in their archives uh, as of 1776. Well, that was the most fascinating thing to me. The other thing is that, uh, that I found out in looking at this in Cracker Boy is that in the last two years leading up to the Revolutionary War, you got a huge amount of industrial slaves escaping. I mean, guys are working in large gangs, in very large iron furnaces, in industrial conditions, and they're breaking out as an organized gang. In the state of Maryland, this is, uh, this is pretty interesting that it happened right on the eve of the Revolutionary War. And the, the fascinating aspects um, that I found were there were only, thir- I think it was 38 women out of the 940-some escapees that were listed. But that makes sense because it's going to be tougher for a chick to try to get away. Uh, it, it's even, it was, you know, it, you're, you're not even supposed to be without a man. And I think a number of these runaway women were with men. It's really the only effective way that you could do it is run away with a guy. So any of the women that did run away by themselves and they didn't go with a fellow male slave, they probably ran away with some guy they met that took them away. But the fact that there are hardly any mulattoes or Negroes listed as runaways in Maryland in this database that goes from the 1730s until 1775, we're talking about two generations. That's really interesting. That, that, that kind of floored me. I didn't expect, I didn't expect to find that. And there were runaways after 1776. I found other ads in obscure places, but the academics have not placed any of them in uh, large groupings post-1776 because they're doing their job and making sure the live well, was it, continues. Was it Pennsylvania that just trashed it? Trashed yeah, the, the Pennsylvania. Uh, yes, yeah, so Pennsylvania, they just burned them off, throw them out all their indentured servant records. And there might be some in township, municipal, and county museums and county historical societies. Yeah, in, in other words, they're they're going to be hard to track down, and there's just going to be a few of them that are going to be scattered. You either have, what you really have is hobbyists who go, you know, and go through the microfiche in the library and do this. Uh, the other option is a university student, you know, PhD candidate. And there's there's nobody who's going to be able to do a PhD on white slaves. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, one of the things we found when we were working on this is that there's this big uh, high-profile project with lots of big names and money behind it to create a database of runaway slave ads. And I wanted to see, well, here, I have a whole bunch, so let me do some cross-checking, you know, all these ads that we have in this book, do any of them appear? So I started sampling, and none of them appeared. Couldn't find a single instance where one of the ads in Cracker Boy also appeared in these guys' database. And the reason was that these guys are not cataloging runaway slaves who aren't black, their only right. category. And so then I started getting more creative in the search and I found out that um, they did have at least one Irish slave 
or one melanin deficient individual. Yeah. And he and he was co-listed with a black guy as two runaways together, and they were they were co-listed. So they 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 let one in there, you know. <laughs> And I email, I did email them. I did some due diligence, you know, like, hey, guys, uh, really interested in your work here. Are you doing any of these, you know, Maryland slaves or whatever? And they, they never, never got back to me. It makes it a fertile field. It's been so ineptly plowed. That's uh, right. That I, I have uh, plenty of material uh, work to sort through. And I'm right now sitting on about 20 narratives of people who have been captured by by Indians yeah. <laughs> and uh, and also narratives of uh, written by rich people who just traveled around yep. and, and plantation in America and there's the Indian connection is a big facet of this because the Indians acted as slave catchers and they also bought and sold many of these uh, European Americans so that's and a lot of the Indians were European Americans too, so yeah. uh, it, it's that more each one of the books after Cracker Boy is more and more weighted. Uh the last three books there's gonna be a whole lot of the white Indian stuff in there because we find out that's where these people end up going. Right. So it's some of them anyhow. Yeah. yeah, they basically slaughtered all the pirates. The British Navy did in on the last black Bart on the coast of Africa, he was the best of the pirates, and also got a hold of uh, Blackbeard off the coast of the Carolinas. The pirates were Caribbean pirates. Their heyday was 1690s to uh, 1730, and they were all gone. So for a while, these guys were all trying to be pirates. They were trying to get with a pirate crew. They were trying to get to a city so they could uh, hop a ship and live a free life, free but short. And as time goes on and the, uh, the state locks down the sea lanes, then people go inland. They run away and try to join the Indians. So Plantation America, there's a lot more to come. But right now, I think if you want to get started in there, you can you can go for Cracker Boy. I think that The Greatest Lie Ever Sold is also a great choice. But I'm going to keep Cracker Boy in there for now. <laughs> So okay. change it. Well, it's nice to be able to throw a phone book down on the table to Yeah. Butcher's. It's a big boy. <laughs> Look at that. He's so chubby. Um all right, and the next one I have is combat and survival. It's the violence project. This is a very special book. It's banned by Amazon and you know that because it says so, so right so. on the cover. Oh but it's for sale on Amazon too. It was kind of tricky how we did that, but it it's true. It's all true. <laughs> so, so that's the logic of that, that's the logic of steel, which was my you know only only book of note that I've written that's actually been sold after and you know outrageously priced as a used book and cited in different studies. It's uh, the sequel to the Fighting Edge, which is also in there. The Fighting Edge was my first book on how to defend yourself if you're not some genetic freak badass and you also don't have a lot of money to go pay some genetic freak badass to, you know, coach you and hopefully not hurt you. So, um, and, and contrary wise, if you have spent a lot of money gaining martial arts proficiency, but found that you're not effective in a fight, then uh, you need this book too, because that's what you, you cover in there. And the, the, both the books are really about how, how much fighting is a bad idea. And I should tell you in a sporting, in a sporting context. So, <laughs> uh, so they're, they're tilting. Uh, as those two books progress, you can see how that, uh, the study I did just tilts it inexorably towards the conclusion that, you know, like getting any type of ego based physical confrontation with strangers is really, well, and then it progresses on into managing aggression, recogni- recognizing being, first of all, just being uh, practicing situational awareness and then recognizing aggression, which so many people cannot do, and then managing it to avoid that fight. And um, 
you know, this is a really systematic approach to what actually happens in violent encounters. How do people get stabbed? You know, I started out feeling pretty confident in writing the first book because I had, you know, it was a couple dozen violent experiences. And then when I started breaking up violence into different categories, I realized I was really deficient in some of these categories. I had little or no experience there, or it had bad outcomes. Uh, so I just started interviewing everybody I could about any violent experience they had. The only precondition was that they would talk to me, which did skew the study towards people that were men, for instance. I probably got 20 or 30 women and six or 700 men interviewed for this thing. Well, it's different from what you would get like at the women's shelter or in a doctor's office or whatever, but it's literally actually people that got stabbed or did the stabbing or got jumped or just found themselves in like every bad situation. And you really honed your chops as a writer doing this because you interviewed hundreds of people. You recorded their stories, you recorded their words and their dialogue and then you analyzed it all and what you come up with is like, uh, <laughs> you know, how people, how this stuff actually happens. It's not like it is in the movies, not like it is in your karate class. It's different. Thanks for resurrecting it after it uh, got whack a mold. Yeah, it got um, summarily executed and we kind of slipped it in there. The two books, so that includes two books in one volume. Either one of those books to buy and use is probably going to cost you about thirty dollars. Yeah. Uh, at least uh, uh, a lot no of more than that. Yeah. Ridiculous prices. Yeah. Um, it's a nice edition. It's it's got all the illustrations. It's a little bit larger format than the original books were in, and um, they're just in there back to back: the Fighting Edge and the Logic of Steel. And um, with corrections, I was never some, able to get power in the making. Yeah. A little bit of corrections. It's kind of a important book, and it will. It, I think it's a collectible book, uh, just like the original editions were. So that's a really good one. If you if you ever meet James Lafond and you bring a book for him to autograph, I think it should be that. I think it should be the Violence Project. Well, I don't know well. why I say that, but I think that's what I think. I was for a child when I wrote those books. You were what? That was, that was 20 years ago when I wrote yeah, this book. Yeah, a long time ago. Like I did it in childhood. Then I chose from biography. I chose Big Ron's book, The Let the World Fend for Itself, Big Ron's Baltimore, A Working Man's View of Urban Blight. And uh, I must uh, admit to uh, sacrificing my own brain cells and... Uh, <laughs> liver function. Liver enzymes. Getting Ron really drunk on like a half a dozen days. I, mean, I, I was drunk too, you know. I mean, we just kept yeah. drinking. There were certain subjects that he would only discuss after he was like 10 beers in. Yeah. Ron's so, a really amazing guy. I feel like I know him better than I do because I, I spent a lot of time on this book also. Um, and we did get to interview him, but the, unfortunately the sound quality is really poor. You can find the interview, but you have to really just read the book to get to know him. I mean, this is a guy who has really unassuming looks and really kind of soft-spoken and nice, And um, but he's he's gotten himself into quite a few scrapes. Well, he's, and, he's more of a Baltimorean than I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was, we were both born in Baltimore City, but I was not raised in Baltimore City. I was raised in Baltimore County and then Washington County, Pennsylvania. And then I returned to Baltimore as a failed young adult and continued to fail and find myself moving further and further into the city into these low economic zones. That where Ron was born in a part of Baltimore that got torched in the heroin and crack epidemics and uh had started in the mid-1980s, and then went to another part of Baltimore City that then got annihilated in the 90s by the same drug thing, the same, you know, uh, all, all the same stuff, all the same urban play. He didn't actually move into uh, 
Baltimore County until after uh, he got married and had children. Uh, he's an incredible survivor. Right? Yeah, he still continued. He, he's, mm. he's, and he's worked in Baltimore City, like I did. He's worked in Baltimore City pretty much his entire life. Yeah, his story is one of surviving public school, surviving just young adulthood in a city that is not doesn't leave a lot of room for error, you know? And surviving on his wits and his fists, and he's a really remarkable guy. Yeah, to give you an idea, his first day of junior junior high school, you know, he ends up getting punched by a man with a beard <laughs> on the school grounds. Um, you know, when he was uh, he was a teenager, he uh, he went back to his old neighborhood just to see if he could find some friends to hang out with, right in front of a church that his mother went to school in, and some cops showed up and beat his ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just because. It's just yeah. wild. Yeah, just because he was uh, he was a little pale face out there on the street, which to the police means he's trying to buy drugs or something. Right. So uh, the, the stuff that's coming to your hometown with the population replacement and with the, the flipping of the uh, police script over the past Half a decade, uh, Ron's already been through it, so that's a that's a good primer on what's going what life's going to be like for pale faces in the future. And one thing that always gets me about Ron too is that, as you say, his his neighborhoods were torched by drugs, and this is a person who, well, okay, he likes to drink a beer or ten, but he has lived through this era of intensive drug addiction and he's just never really touched it and he's lost so many people to it in his life um so that fascinates me it fascinates me even from an evolutionary perspective because i wonder like how do these how do you just have one guy who who just doesn't and and it has to do with how he was raised that the advice that his parents gave him and his i know he had uncles and different men in his life who kind of Told him that the drugs are a trap. Drugs have largely served as a social sorting mechanism. I got into, I really got into historical tabletop gaming because I found myself as one of only three high school students in Trinity High School, Pennsylvania, who did not get high, did not do drugs. It was me, Dale Cushman, Randy Boyer, and I hardly knew these guys, but I ended up becoming friends with them because, uh, they also didn't do drugs. They were much smarter and more responsible than me. They were nicer than me. I mean, it, it, you know, I was I was like the one lowbrow that didn't do drugs, and they were the two college-bound guys that didn't do drugs. And this is out of a class that's over 100 people. So you're looking at, like, at 2%, maybe, in this suburban school of people that don't get high. So... You see it with Ron and one or two other people I met from Baltimore City who, who also didn't take the drug route. And the thing is, though, when in the 1970s, being a suburban kid doing drugs, you were in the mainstream, just pretty much meant you were going to end up being a mind slave like you know most Americans. But to get into that lifestyle, living in a city like Baltimore where the drug trade is managed by corrupt police, and uh, African American criminals who hate you. Well, that's a death sentence <laughs> down there. So, so it was, yeah. Uh, but you're talking about extreme outlier personality. So, not through drugs in this society. Yeah, definitely. Bunch of us weirdos out here not getting high. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white lady, and I don't take antidepressants. So, that's pretty unusual. <laughs> oh, well, I know I know women who have to take an antidepressant to get out of bed yeah. and as soon as they get to work they have to take it uh, an anti anxiety. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely common. Everybody's hyped up, you know, everybody's hopped up on something, almost everybody. I, the last one I chose was in the Harm City category, White in the Savage Night. And I think I chose this one because it included your first trip to Utah. Oh, where I wrote those landscapes, sketches. Yeah. yeah, I like that. So, But the truth is, the Harm City category is a little bit stuck, too, because another book 
in that category got banned. Two of, well, no, Autumn in a Dying City. And so I need to, this is my fault for letting that languish, but I want to get Autumn in a Dying City published in an alternative outlet. And then... Well, that was the volume. That was the Harm City volume, I believe, right after Light and Savage Night. Yeah. And then there's Winter in a Dying City. And... Harm City to Chicago. Yeah, Harm City. And those started to get really intense, like, in 2017. Freddie Gray was in 2015, and somehow by the end of 2017, things were just really bad, and your commutes were just insane. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, it really really was totally crazy. So, yeah, uh, late in a savage night, I think. There's the stories in there where I get I get chased coming back from my girlfriend's house at night. I get chased by these young young guys that are trying to hunt me down. And then also the story where these four guys in this car pulled up on me and pinched me against the curb and the three big dudes start piling out and I pulled out a knife and you know, I made sure they couldn't see it because I didn't want to get shot. And then the driver is like, Oh, Wrong dude. <laughs> and I get back in the car and pull off. You know, just like stuff like that. Uh, it, w- what was happening in 2017, primarily, the big, huge difference in 2017 uh, to previous years is that I would be on the street in Baltimore County, in Baltimore City, minding my own business, uh, and walking in a very slightly populated crime scape where almost nobody was on the street. Me, and some maybe other individuals, maybe a group of small group of people. And guys that were that didn't seem to be criminals that were on their way to do something, like maybe going into a pizzeria, going to the liquor store, going to the supermarket, running uh to go somewhere perpendicular uh to where I was going. And they would turn and they would see me. And they would see that I was alone, that I was the wrong color, and that I was walking with a cane because my hip was bothering me pretty bad. And cold weather, I usually needed a cane just to get on and off the bus. And these guys would stop what they were doing and just look at me and then just make a beeline towards me. You know, uh, like the guys coming after me because I had an umbrella and it was raining. Just you had guys that weren't out looking for people to jack up, but they was like, well, Opportunity, pale face, get him. You know, I mean, it's like, it was total wilderness. I was, uh, I might as well have been Jebediah Smith, uh, you know, exploring the Rockies, <laughs> you know, and just wondering when the Indians were going to see me and just decide to scout me because I was, uh, you know, of a different race. So, right. yeah, that, that's what's, that's what's really starting to happen in White the Savage Night. Yeah. So that, that's. I injured my hip when I was writing that book. I tore my rotator and my left rotator muscle in my hip. I think it was like September 22nd, right when I got back from my first trip to Utah in 2016. And then by 2017, I'm limping around and I even had this giant homeless guy with a broken knee dragging himself dragging his dead leg after him trying to get to me <laughs> one morning at five in the morning. <laughs> you know, all this stuff kind of starts to happen when when I get injured and then I start to look over and it's already been, uh, you know, it's already been a free hunt on Whitey for a while and now I'm looking like, <laughs> you know, I'm on the downside of the mountain. So that's it. Those are my selections for the starter pack. So if you read those, you will sort of have a pretty good idea of where to move forward in your your shopping of James LaFont's books. That's fine. I really really appreciate that. I think I'm going to release this as a a podcast because it's long enough. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. A little impromptu uh, um, coverage of the bookstore.
getting late and we've got shit to do in outer space. Mothers, mothers can wait. We will take the ones worth saving. Pack your bags, we are vacating now. Forever, forever. Traffic and the 